0: One of my charges is really to think about, given that we are um, half of our college's teacher education, are we training our future teachers to implement evidence-based practices? Are we teaching them the curriculum that they're going to be teaching in the schools, following the science of teaching and learning?
1: Welcome to Primary Sources, a podcast produced by East Tennessee State University that highlights the important research happening at ETSU. Joining us today on Primary Sources is Dr. Pamela Mims. She is a professor of special education and associate dean for research and grants within the Clemmer College at East Tennessee State University. Her research interests, as well as her publication topics are broad. Dr. Mims has examined the use of instructional strategies for providing better access to grade-aligned academic content for students with significant disabilities as well as how technology can be used to promote increased access to students with disabilities. She was recently funded for a grant called Launching High School Bioengineers on Their Paths to College and Careers. This national endeavor is part of a bio-made project aimed at increasing awareness that bio-industrial manufacturing is a career path open to all. She taught in a middle school classroom for seven years working with students with severe disabilities and autism. Dr. Mims earned her Ph.D. in special education at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Dr. Mims, thank you for being here.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: You earned your Ph.D. in special education. Talk a little bit about the program you went through and how it put you on the path you are on now.
0: I think it's a good story, but So I went to UNC Charlotte for my PhD in special education. At the time, um, this was in 2006, I had taught for seven years for students uh, in a classroom in South Asheville for students with really, really significant um, disabilities, so medically fragile, and at that point, it was such an uncertainty in my classroom um, with the, I mean, honestly, I lost students, and. Many of my students were in the pediatric ICU at some point during that last year of my teaching. And I knew I loved the field so much, but emotionally, because you're so intimately involved in like the self-care and academic, all of this, and you have students for multiple years. So I was in a a self-contained class. They become family, my students, and and it was just so hard. So at the time, um, there were legal mandates that changed the trajectory of outcomes for students with significant disabilities in regard to that they had to have access to age and grade appropriate content and be assessed in the end of grade assessment just like everybody else. And you couldn't just exempt students. And we really didn't know how to do that. We didn't have any research to guide us. And of course, being a special educator, I was not a content Expert, I knew how to adapt and modify. And at the time, there was a researcher out of UNC Charlotte, Dr. Diane Browder, who was starting to tackle what this looked like. And I thought, I'm interested in learning more about this. And just, you know, the philosophical kind of approach that it's dangerous to assume incompetence to, um, for students with severe disabilities, because if you assume incompetence, it could be very harmful. But assuming competence, why not? Because it couldn't hurt, but it could hurt if you believed in the opposite, like, oh, they're like a baby, you can't, they can't learn, or all that kind of stuff. So she really um, was a strong believer in that philosophy of least dangerous assumption and trying to figure out how do we teach academics to this population and make it meaningful. And so I decided to apply to the doctoral program. And somehow I got in, and somehow she became my advisor, and I really, genuinely, just kind of rode her wave because she was one of the only researchers internationally to start to investigate this. So she had a big federal research grant on teaching early reading skills to students who were nonverbal. So no one's ever thought about this. This is a population that historically has never been taught to read, because if you can't vocalize, you know, there people thought they can't learn to read again a dangerous assumption and so i remember even being reluctant so i would go in and do the pre-assessments and and working with students with really complex needs like spastic cerebral palsy and nonverbal, and just you know use eye gaze or had a small head movement and they would i would do an assessment on you know decoding or uh, like let's say segmenting words and they'd have to indicate the sounds that they hear in the words and Of course, they couldn't do it at that point. But then watching the progression, so we used, um, started to develop, borrow from what we knew about teaching reading, the science of reading, to students that were typically developing and started to adapt and modify it for what it would look like for someone that's nonverbal. And of course, what we taught the teachers to do, the teachers did it and did it really well, and the students responded. And so by the end of the year, we would see these students making amazing gains in these early literacy skills. And that's what really sold it to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, we've just doubted this population for so long. And we were seeing students move through this curriculum. Again, it was more of a a research team developed curriculum. And uh, it was a five year grant with a randomized control trial and just the treatment group was outperforming the control group like crazy and so that work we started to spin off and do additional studies on you know these kids that would were in elementary school would go to middle school and have really nothing there in middle school they had this great early literacy curriculum in elementary school so we i started to take the lead on developing what it would look like to teach grade aligned academic content to students with severe disabilities at the middle school age and not having any clue what we were doing, but meeting with content experts that knew gen ed ELA instruction and finding out what it looks like in a typical classroom. What does the evidence show about teaching this kind of content? And then again, adapting and modifying. And um, we started to develop these scripted lessons. One of the things we know about the learning for students with severe disabilities is that we know that they need explicit direct systematic instruction with repeated multiple trials of multiple exposures and with that kind of instruction with strong principles of reinforcement and error correction that we can see pretty impressive learning and finding a way for them each student to show what they know so it may not be a vocal verbal response, but could they touch a response, a picture symbol, or could they eye gaze, or could they use a, the head switch that activated a, a speech generating device to say the response for them, things like that. And so that work, we did lots of research. It was kind of this iterative process. We would try things out and do some some single case design studies and make edits. and along the way a publishing company came along and said we want to publish this and we were thinking no no no! this was not meant to be a curriculum a true published curriculum but they insisted that teachers across the country because there's these legal mandates to teach grade aligned content needed supports and resources one of the things we talk about in my line of research is knowing how to of course everyone likes takeout takeout is great Mm -hmm. but knowing how to cook from scratch is really essential and so i was fine with Creating something that was take out, if you will. So, these published curricula, but I needed also teachers to know how to cook from scratch. And so, I was never keeping it secret what our research had, you know, showed. It was just that we put it together and, and the company sold it to school system. So, but I have trained across the world now and teach teachers how to cook from scratch. So, that work, uh, and then of course, there's some work we did in um, science instruction and math instruction that was pretty similar and parallel to what we found in ELA and just, again, having high expectations for the population and using really good evidence-based practices, we were, the sky's the limit. So I ended up having that really fortunate time with Dr. Browder and her team and getting to be a part of multiple research grants and studies. And then and then I ended up staying on for an extra year after I graduated to run one of her grants and the grant was ending, and then that's how I ended up uh, finding a job at ETSU. And so that's, that was my, my doctoral program experience. I, I will be forever grateful. I would never be where I am now with the type of research or getting to travel internationally and do the work nationally that I do, given that without that experience, my doctoral work.
1: That's an incredible story. Once you got your PhD, a lot of your research has focused on strategies for those with disabilities. Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, so I continued my work when I got to ETSU. I was actually lucky enough to partner with the company that I had worked with prior, Attainment Company, and we submitted an Institute of Educational Sciences small business innovative research grant, and we knew it was pretty unlikely to be funded. They're pretty competitive, and so those grants are are really, um, there's a phase one, which is like $150,000 usually to develop some sort of prototype, and then a phase two, which is a much larger two-year grant um, that's close to a million dollars to really scale up that work, and really the focus on usability and feasibility studies. So we applied for a phase one and were funded and, and created a prototype of an app, and really it was to supplement, actually at the time when we built, when I wrote, the curriculum, we started to learn even more. And so we wanted to go deeper into the state standards and broader into the state standards in English language arts. And so we knew that a supplemental app or software program could help with that. So to partner it with the the paper curriculum that we had originally come out with. And so that's what we did. We started to develop something that went even deeper and broader. So how do we go into skills that we hadn't yet tried in english language arts and um and so we did that so we did phase one ended up being not just a usability feasibility study but really had outcome data to show it was really effective the company developed this app and the software component to it was really great we had all the evidence-based practices that that we knew a teacher could deliver with fidelity built into the app which i was pretty i was pretty Admit that it had to adhere to the fidelity of the practice, because otherwise, if it did some sort of alternate version of the practice or a similar version but not exactly it, that would be worrisome. And also, I didn't want teachers to start to glean from the app and, and pick up bad habits. And so the research results were great. We applied for a phase two. And somehow the stars were aligned. <laughs> that year in the in the Institute of Educational Sciences SBR funding, we were the only one that was funded at phase two nationally. And not only that, it was a severe disabilities focused research, which normally it's um, kids that are at risk or kids without disabilities that get the funding. So I don't know how that one happened, but it was very exciting. And so we had a lot more money to scale up. And so we did a, an iterative research project where we did lots of small single case design studies and made tweaks and fixes and and let the results guide and the feedback from the teacher's guide changes and then we did a large randomized control trial. I say large randomized control trial knowing that finding many students to randomly assign that have a severe disability is not, you know, there's not a, a huge N there, but we were able to find enough from the South Buncombe County in North Carolina all the way to the border of Virginia and our results were pretty phenomenal. Um,
1: Yeah. So you have also received funding for a major grant called Launching High School Bioengineers on Their Paths to College and Careers. Tell us a little bit about this project.
0: Yeah, so that one's deviating quite a bit from my typical path on working with kids with severe disabilities, but I was fortunate enough at some point during the pandemic, once things had started, started to tamper down a bit, and we started to emerge. Um, Dr. Natalie Kildell was invited to our campus to come talk to us about biotech or bioengineering and what was on the horizon. And I was invited to come and meet with her along with some other people across campus and was really interested in what she shared. So she is the founder of a company called BioBuilder and it's a curriculum to teach synthetic biology to really focus on high school students And I was fascinated and apparently we had two teachers at Dobbins Bennett that were implementing it already and having some really great success. So just sharing anecdotally what they were experiencing and not only that, but what also pulled my interest in was that they were implementing it with students with disabilities as well. And so we knew that this movement was here and meeting with people like Dr. Kilaru Aruna on our campus to really know and hearing some of the reports coming out from DC that this is going to be a huge um, area of um, job development in the future, that we needed to have students that were graduating from ETSU that could fill this position, workforce development, all of that, and also knowing that uh, at this, or a similar time along the way that nicewanger had a big uh, federal grant and they incorporated synthetic biology at, at the high school level and BioBuilder into that grant as well. And so knowing that there were teachers being trained and implementing this in our local schools, my other role as the Associate Dean of Research and Grants, one of my charges is really to think about, given that we are um, half of our college's teacher education, are we training our future teachers? to implement evidence-based practices. Are we teaching them the curriculum that they're going to be uh, teaching in the schools, following the science of teaching and learning? So I had asked Natalie, Dr. Kildell, what was the research on the efficacy of the curriculum? And she said, we don't have any. And so to date, they only have some really great anecdotal and some pre and post information, but more perceptions. But no one's really tested the efficacy of this curriculum as a whole. And so I was really really interested in if we had teachers teaching it and there was this pressure to introduce it to our pre-service teachers in our college yet I was hesitant because what was the evidence base behind it? And so are we going to be promoting something that really didn't have an evidence base and and so that's really what led me to the interest in looking into this more. And so at some point more recently and natalie and i had been continuing this conversation and knowing that there was this surge of um, emphasis on preparing college-age students to be workforce development she approached me about writing a grant to with her it was a grant to biomade which was they had funding from the department of defense again on really uh, workforce development and so the focus of the grant we proposed was these BioBuilder clubs, which are these kind of after-school clubs that would um, use the the BioBuilder curriculum, and they would have a teacher helping, kind of monitor, but and then partner with a scientist from our campus that would really guide them, and you know actually getting to have a scientist in there at their disposal. And does participating in something like this lead to students being interested in career paths or going into college? programs that focused on synthetic biology. And so that's the work we're doing now. It's a two year grant, and we are about to start. We're working on the IRB right now, but starting some pilot um, uh, look at some of the soft measures and the more hard measures of do they not only learn more content using this curriculum, this approach, which is a very hands on lab driven, uh, experiential versus more traditional, like books and lecture kind of approach. And so do we see differences in learning this way versus a more traditional way? And does experience giving an opportunity to participate in these BioBuilder clubs lead to students wanting to go into synthetic biology fields or, or study it further in college? Right now we don't have a clear pathway at ETSU for students that are learning this in their high schools to come and then bridge into college and continue that pathway if they're interested. So I also was a part of, I always laugh about how I end up on these committees, but the task force for uh, synthetic biology task force on our campus, which was made up of such brilliant people across campuses, this pretty interdisciplinary discipline. And then me from the education world saying, I don't know, but it's coming. We are training high school students now, even middle school students and we're really gonna miss the boat if we don't have an approach. And so the question was, what is the status of and what would it take and here's some directions. And so one of the recommendations by the committee was to help, I think there was a lot of unknown about what is synthetic biology. And so that was the impetus behind having the, the big symposium that we hosted at the end of October. And then the people who came to our campus were pretty phenomenal getting to be on our campus to talk about the potential for our region and that we are right in in the right place for really bringing in industry and job and workforce development and really could change the trajectory of our region. And then some of the high school students that had participated were out there and came in and we got to see and I mean it's pretty phenomenal what these kids are doing. I know I wasn't doing the things like they were doing when I was in high school. So then another recommendation was to create an undergrad major in bioengineering. And so there's a group now, again, I somehow was asked to be on that group. I don't really have business being on this group for developing curriculum, but working with a team to develop a undergrad track in bioengineering. So I think there's a lot of potential, but the primary focus of my work on the grant is to uh, working with some of these scientists that are so brilliant in these areas, they don't know how to do human subjects or they are human subjects research is not something that they are well-versed in. And, and so I am and can help with that process. So really looking at some of these primary and secondary dependent variables and looking at, does it lead to this content knowledge better than a traditional track and so student perceptions change after having um, experience from in participating in a biosynthetic biology club. And so uh, Sean Fox, we were lucky enough to include, ask him to be a part of our work as our uh, scientists on campus that will get to interface with our students that are in these clubs. We also were interested in looking at differences, if there were any differences in urban versus rural schools that implement the BioBuilder Club. So we have partners and schools implementing in um, Memphis. We're looking at adding on schools in urban Nashville, very diverse schools in downtown Nashville. And so again, what does it look like as compared to a more rural implementation of this uh, BioBuilder Club, and are there any differences? So That's kind of the work for the two years that I've been charged with, and I'm excited to see what happens. And of course, being able to answer at least a first pilot study on the efficacy of this program is really, of personal interest to me. And then if we see that those results, we'd like to apply for bigger federal funds to start to investigate and replicate to see if we see similar situations across the country and which, you know, replication is key for identifying evidence-based practices. So that's kind of where my work with the synthetic biology, um, how that all happened is my other hat as the associate Dean for Research and Grants and being pretty adamant that our college is implementing research-based and evidence-based practices, and we are staying away from pseudosciences or what we think may work, but we really don't have the evidence to say so, so.
1: That is all so impressive. And I've heard so many positive things about the symposium over at the Martin Center in October. So let's transition a bit and talk about a campaign I know you're very familiar with, the Thank an Educator campaign. It is one that ETSU and Clemmer College has launched and the focus is really about raising awareness of the many, many ways educators benefit students. Is there an educator that you would like to spotlight?
0: I do. I want to sp- She was uh, just a recent graduate of our master's program. Her name's Ty Williams. I actually knew Ty when I was at UNC Charlotte in my doctoral program. She was a teacher in a a school for students with pretty significant disabilities in downtown Charlotte. And we would do a lot of our studies in her classroom because she was always willing. She is one that deeply embraces the philosophy of least dangerous assumption. And so um, and was willing to just try anything. And so we, we did quite a few studies in her classroom and learned so much. She was really great on giving us feedback. And of course, we had the data to guide our decisions. But just from a teacher perspective, that social validity side too. And so, at years later, um, you know, I left that area, and uh, we we lost touch. Um, but during the pandemic, I was reintroduced to Thai somehow. During the pandemic, when everything shut down, I had a lot of our alumni, our grads from our program and special education, reach out saying, "Dr. Mims, I need help. I don't know what this looks like. Online learning for students with really severe disabilities, or..." And I didn't either, right? I'm not all knowing, and and so, but I think that there was a model I experienced in my master's program that David Westling introduced me to was a teacher support program. And the idea of pulling people together is there's a power in the group and brainstorming, and we're not alone in this, because often there's, a, there's the one classroom serving this population in a school, and so they're feeling very isolated, and who are their counterparts that can give them advice on what are they doing, and so, my colleagues, uh, Dr. Chambers and Dr. Rowe, and I decided to start a teacher support program for teachers of students with significant and parents or whoever that needed support. And um, somehow it went a little viral, and we ended up. It was meant to be regional, just in our region, but it was via Zoom, and so you know we just kind of learned a lot. Like, okay, yeah, why not? And we had over almost a hundred teachers from across the country join, and one wow. of them was Ty who left Charlotte and went to Wyoming. So Ty had had been, she's so innovative in thinking through strategies. So she was such a great support in brainstorming ideas or things that she did with her team, her paraprofessionals and supporting the students with significant disabilities at her school where she taught. And so um, I think through that, kind of reconnection. She said, I'm so inspired. I think I'm interested in getting my master's degree. And I said, come get your master's degree. And she said, well, I'm here and you're there. And I said, it's OK, we can figure this out. We, we learned so much via um, the pandemic with technology and how to support in online learning. And so somehow we managed to have Ty come into our master's program. And um, as somebody she uh, had been teaching for over 30 years, by the way, so this was someone who had an undergrad degree and was lots of brilliant experiences, was a part of research studies, all of that. She experienced a very difficult year and I watched her, We I would be a sounding board for support and advocacy for her where she was kind of deemed as this troublemaker teacher and it was at that point where I think after 31 years of teaching, she said, I love this so much, but I think it's time for me to move on. And she was so inspired. She was so sweet about our master's program and how amazing and the skills she learned that she's like, I think I wanna go into a doctoral program. And I was a huge supporter of that, but I just wanna give a shout out to Ty Williams. So she's now at the at UNC Charlotte, back where I went through my math, uh, PhD program. She's getting her PhD there. But she completed our master's program as a teacher the whole time, implemented her thesis during the pandemic. It was We had great data, we're in the process of uh, finishing up for publication now. And the study was really, it was focused on writing instruction for students with severe disabilities, and what does that look like. And, and just so resilient during, and is a true model of believing so much in this population of students that has been really under you know, put a glass ceiling on their whole lives and and people just, I mean, honestly, this was a group that was institutionalized back in the day. And so um, really kind of the sky's the limit with um, not putting a glass ceiling on this population, truly believing them, and then will fight like crazy for what they, um, their legal rights and what they have rights to have. And she's done that for over 31 years and finally is making this new shift to go and and become a professor and a researcher because uh, I do think she was pretty inspired by our master's program, demystifying the idea of research, which she had experienced as a teacher, but as a someone that was leading her own research study for her master's thesis, it was pretty great. So that's the teacher I want to thank. So she's one of our alum, and has had thirty-one years of making a difference in the lives of students with significant disabilities. Wow! And probably many more to come, but in a different different role. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So as we wrap up this episode, is there any research you're currently working on that you'd like to talk about?
0: Yeah, so that study that we did with Ty, I've been working, um, one of my colleagues, Rob Pennington at UNC Charlotte, he was not there when I was a doctoral student, but we connected, he was at University of Louisville, um, and he started, he was one that was doing a lot of work on what does it look like to teach writing instruction to students with severe disabilities, knowing that we're not talking about traditional writing, pencil and paper, the motor con- motor control issues definitely. We looked at lots of assistive technology and, and supporting through iPads and apps and eye gaze and things like that. And so um, some of the work that I did with attainment company, Rob was an expert consultant on that work. We've published together, we've done several studies now together, and um, when Ty was kind of thinking about what she wanted to do for her master's thesis she had read some of that work and my own work on writing instruction it was like this is something i see as a real problem we are so connected to devices now so having an opportunity i mean written expression in a wide range not just like paragraph writing for writing your opinion after experiencing something but just everyday communication is such a written modality now so um, social media and all of that so really being inspired by that she wanted to work on that. And I said, she kept talking about Rob Pennington. I said, you know, I know Rob. <laughs> He's one of my friends and colleagues. Let's ask him if he wants to be a part of uh, the committee, the um, thesis committee. And he did. And we were able to take one of the studies and extend it. So uh, fill in the gaps of what hasn't been done yet. So, And I'm pretty inspired to continue this work. So Ty's thesis was specifically looking at during embedded in a natural routine of a story-based lesson. So these are Kindergarten, first, second, third graders go through a story-based, you know, a shared story experience, and then could they write sentences? Something as simple as um, using sentence frames, which is a strategy, and constant time delay, which is a evidence-based response prompting strategy, systematic instruction. So, could we take these sentence frames and this app so that the students can they didn't have to physically write; they could drag the words into a sentence. And during the middle of a story-based lesson, could they write sentences? So, I see a blank, or, and then the final sentence was, I read about blank. And so the study went was phenomenal. I mean, the, the data were so beautiful. <laughs> and so we, we, it was another study that showed that this is a great strategy for teaching written instruction to our students with severe disabilities. And so I'm really interested in extending that. But not only that, but what does it look like in the gen ed classroom? Right, so I'm a big proponent of full inclusion. So given that we in special education are not content experts, the gen ed teachers are. And so I really want to start to partner with gen ed teachers. There's such rich data on the benefits of full inclusion of students with significant disabilities. And I think we need to move that direction more and really study what it looks like to use strategies that have a strong evidence base behind them, like embedded instruction and peer supports and combine that with the strategies we know work like sentence frames and technology and constant time delay, but what does that look like in a gen ed classroom along peers without disabilities? And so that's kind of the next direction I want to go is looking at these great strategies to promote inclusion of students with severe disabilities in the gen ed classroom.
1: Dr. Mims, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to Primary Sources. Our theme music was created by students of Martin Walters, a member of ETSU's Department of Music. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with friends and colleagues.